This is Olivia Berkman, and welcome to Balance Sheet. Whether you're next in line for the CEO role or your understanding of the process of succession is mostly informed by the show, there's still a lot of mystery around what it takes to become and stay a great CEO. CEOs are under intense scrutiny these days, and as the demands from stakeholders for competent leadership increase, the process of CEO succession has become more critical than ever before. We continue to see failures of leadership in the news, from inappropriate relationships to cutting the line for a vaccine. A growing number of CEOs have failed early in their terms, often with devastating consequences to their companies and stockholders. In this episode, I had the privilege to interview Dr. Paul Winham, a senior partner at leadership consulting firm RHR, co-author of the book Inside CEO Succession, The Essential Guide to Leadership Transition, and longtime family friend. Here's the interview. I went to Columbia as an undergraduate and then went out to Notre Dame for graduate school, got my PhD, came back to New York. I worked for eight years in the nonprofit sector, ultimately becoming a chief operating officer of a large nonprofit on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And then in 1991, I joined RHR. For the past 12 years, I've been the head and co-head of our board and CEO services practice. RHR International is a 75-year-old management advisory and consulting firm that was founded in 1945 in Chicago after World War II and all the vets came back and the U.S. economy shifted from kind of a wartime to an industrial economy. The founders of my firm, who were all PhD psychologists, began applying the art and science of the field of psychology to organizational and executive leadership. The firm gets hired by boards to assist them in doing evaluations of their effectiveness. And then a big part of our business is working with executives who are in C-suite roles or people who are being prepared for C-suite roles uh, to help them lead effectively and also to work with them on CEO succession, which is probably the board's most important responsibility. Have you ever watched the show Succession? You know, I have seen a couple episodes. I know it's, it's pretty highly regarded, but I haven't, you know, sat down and kind of binge watched it. But um, I've, heard it's, I've heard it's quite good. It is. It's really, really good. All of the actors are incredible. And we're about halfway through the second season. A focus of yours is CEO Succession. And I wondered, like, how accurate it is um, from your perspective. Are you watching it kind of thinking like, oh, this is silly or or does a lot of it ring true to you? Well, I mean, from the episodes that I did watch, I mean, I know that it's a family owned business. And so it's very interesting. I have worked with uh, CEO Succession family owned businesses, and it's kind of the confluence of two challenging streams of dynamics, you know, so one is just standard business succession challenges um, that, you know, any organization goes through. But in a family-owned business, you're overlaying the family dynamic, managing the called social psychological dimensions of that are really critical because there are always issues of ego, power, status, legacy that, you know, are where the devil lies in, in those details. 
An understanding of the company's P&L and, and what drives revenue is really important for a CEO, which means a CFO is in a great position to take on the role. What are some of the other qualities that are best suited for the CEO role? CFOs often are really liked by boards as potential candidates. However, you know, one of the real critical requirements of most CEO jobs is someone that has actually had direct responsibility for P&L bottom line. Often what companies will do when they're developing internal candidates, particularly from the finance organization, is to look for an opportunity to seed one of those succession candidates into a line business unit, either as the head of that business unit or working closely with the head of that business unit. So they really get familiarity with what it takes to lead, you know, a P&L organization. And then related to that, another critical thing that, you know, a CFO or a controller or somebody in the finance function is, is their ability to acquire um, and develop talent. So nobody runs an organization by themselves and the CEO often gets a lot of credit and a lot of blame uh, when things go well or don't go so well. Every CEO realizes that their ability to be effective is ultimately a function of who are the people who are in the mission critical roles that have to work individually and then as a collective team in order to execute on the strategy. So having a deep appreciation for that and the ability to attract talent, to retain that talent and and to uh, develop that talent is another really critical thing. And sometimes people that come up through a CFO organization are very focused on the quantitative dimension. They're looking at numbers, they're looking at spreadsheets, they're looking at treasury, but the talent side of it is something that sometimes gets a little bit shorter shrift. So the best CFOs are ones who forge really good relationships with their peers on the executive team who really work to understand the opportunities and challenges that their colleagues are, are facing and are seen as resources to help them be successful, and then the management of their own team. So great CFOs are great at attracting and retaining and developing talent underneath them. So this whole kind of being a talent magnet um, and a talent agent, so to speak, is a really important dimension that is really worth investing in. If you are a CFO, you're someone aspiring to the, to the CEO role, getting a reputation as someone that's great with t- talent um, is really an important complement to the to the you know the financial acumen that, that CFOs usually bring. Outside of skill sets, how much does personality come into play? You know, it's certainly pretty important and I think it, it directly relates to this kind of relationship development dimension. Many people may be familiar with some of the personality inventories over the course of their careers. Sometimes as part of executive development, people might be asked to take the Myers-Briggs inventory. Robert Hogan has developed a series of inventories that are looking at leadership and personality as it plays out in organizational life. 
And all of us have particular styles, particular ways of, of relating. We have certain strengths to our personality and style, and we have certain potential derailers that if we're not aware of and managing, you know, can kind of hurt us in our career development. But I think, you know, one of the critical dimensions of a great executive leader is having a high level of self-awareness. Over the last 25 years, I'm sure, you know, your audience is familiar with the work of Daniel Goleman in emotional intelligence. So that EQ is a really critical part of being successful, which includes both self-awareness so that we know what our strengths are, we know some of our limitations, we know how we might potentially show up under stress in a way that could be problematic. And being self-aware helps us to self-manage. But the other side of that EQ is also having a great awareness of the other people that we work with. So being um, you know, kind of attuned to their motivations and being able to kind of utilize our insights about other people to develop, cultivate really um, good working relationships with them. So I think the personality dimension is, is pretty important. You've been at RHR, you said for 30 years. How have you seen the path to CEO change? Over the decades, so you may have seen the book that um, I co-authored called Inside CEO Succession. I mean, the, the, the derivation of that book was a combination of, of my firms. At that point, it was about 65 years of experience doing CEO successions and also interviews with a lot of board members and CEOs that have been part of successions that have gone well and ones that didn't go so well to try to kind of extract the lessons learned. And over most of, up until I would say a decade or so ago, a lot of CEO succession was managed by the incumbent CEO. The the tenure of CEOs used to be a lot longer, in many cases averaging more than a decade, and in some cases two decades or more. And the sitting CEO often would be the person that would be responsible for picking and grooming a successor and then presenting that successor to the board. And unless there were problems or issues, the board often would rubber stamp um, you know, the, uh, the selection choice. So that inside candidate often was someone that was selected and groomed in the likeness and image of the, of the sitting CEO, often with a similar background, you know, coming often through the business. Um, that was, I think, the primary source of, of candidates in the pipeline. In 2008, when the market crashed, there became kind of a shift And first of all, the tenure of CEOs started to get a lot shorter. The pressure on CEOs started to increase significantly. And the average tenure now of CEOs is is between five and seven years, depending upon industry and size of company. So there became much more, I wouldn't say churn, but certainly a, a faster turnover of CEOs which um, also put more pressure on boards to be thinking about how do we, you know, make sure that we've got continuity and leadership in this really mission critical role. So that also, I think, 
triggered a little bit of an expansion in looking at the candidate pool and um, both inside and outside. Most often the last, I don't know, half a dozen years, about 75% of the time when there's a CEO succession, the candidate comes from inside the company. But nowadays, I think a line business executive is still the most common pathway to the, to the CEO seat. CFOs are increasingly important. Um, in some industries, I've even seen general counsels. And then, of course, there's uh, you know, a pretty big imperative now to increase diversity in terms of women and people of color. And there's, uh, there's a lot of research that suggests that increasing the diversity in the C-suite and in the boardroom actually generates better outcomes for companies over time. So I think there is a push for an increase in diversity and looking more broadly for candidates rather than the usual suspects. When you hear about a new CEO taking over at a very well-known organization, how often, I would think it's very often, are the, is that organization partnered with an RHR or, or somebody like that who is assisting with that transition, whether it be a coach or how, how often is that the case? Yeah, no, it's a great question because what's interesting is that um, there's a lot of effort that goes into the selection of the CEO. The board is usually very, very active. Uh, the, the incumbent CEO is usually very active. The chief human resource officer is often involved. And there's a lot of effort put into looking at and vetting both internal candidates and comparing them to outside candidates. And when the selection decision is finally made, there's kind of a collective sigh of relief that everyone says, thank goodness, we've got a great CEO. And the message to the new CEO is, hey, we're so glad you're here. Let us know how we can help you. Good luck. Uh, and then, you know, often there, there's kind of a backing off. And a lot of our research showed that the first 18 to 24 months of a new CEO's tenure is critical in kind of predicting the success path or not of that CEO. And the way in which the transition is managed from the outgoing CEO to the incoming, the way in which the integration of the new CEO as they form relationships with the board, with key customers, external stakeholders, the investment community, uh, and the internal management team that they're inheriting, those transitions and the integration process is very, very critical to having a successful uh, CEO succession. In many cases, there's a lot of great work on selecting somebody who has a stellar background, a great performance track record, but two years later, they wind up not working out. A lot of that has to do with, quote, the soft stuff, you know, the relationship management and stakeholder management stuff and the integration into the culture, that is, these are really critical things. So really good succession process involves helping to support that CEO through the transition, through the integration. Often there's a board member that's kind of assigned as a, as a mentor. Often the board chair or the lead director will take a personal kind of hands-on responsibility for being a resource for that new CEO. Um, often our firm is engaged as a resource 
you know, we do pretty thorough assessments of candidates. Uh, so we know them really well. We know their strengths. We know some of their potential derailers. So we often are engaged as an integration coach to help support the new CEO and help the new CEO with their new executive team. And that really goes back to 1945 when the firm started and all of these new companies were building management teams. So the selection of who kind of comes onto the bus is, is certainly important, but then how people work together and manage all of the synergies so that the whole is better than the sum of the parts, that's you know, a really important part of this process. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. Do you think it's more, in your experience, is it more challenging to integrate as someone coming from outside of the organization versus someone who came up through the organization? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, person from the inside has the benefit of knowing everybody, usually pretty, very familiar with the, with the culture. I think the challenge for insiders is moving from a peer-to-peer relationship with their fellow executives to now being kind of a boss. And that transition is sometimes uh, challenging and also shifting and forging in many cases uh, a different and new relationship with board of directors, who is ultimately the boss of the CEO. Um, Inside executives often have some exposure to the board, but it's frequently somewhat limited. So that's an important um, part. But an outsider coming in has the challenge of learning the business, learning the culture, learning the key kind of stakeholders who are the critical partners. So there's a, there's a much heavier lift for an outsider coming in, which is part of what puts the risk profile for an outside hire to be greater than an in- inside candidate. We talked about the pressure that CEOs are, the increased pressure that CEOs are under today and the scrutiny that they face. And People probably look at their CEO and at times they feel frustrated or they feel like I could do that or I would make this decision differently and et cetera. What do you think are some of the more common misconceptions and myths about being in the CEO role? What is it really like? What do you think people get wrong about the CEO role? Well, the first thing that jumps to mind, Olivia, is that I think we tend to assume that the CEO is all powerful and ultimately kind of makes all the decisions and makes all the calls. You know, in some situations, a CEO is also the board chair. So that does add more kind of 
power and heft to the ball, but it's almost like the coach of a football team is a pretty important kind of bottom line role, but that person reports to a general manager. There's someone who's in charge of player personnel, and that's why some football coaches will actually insist on having decision rights and authority over personnel and even getting a GM role as well. But, you know, CEOs are not all powerful. They have to answer to a board of directors. They have to answer to the investment community. Uh, They often are very much affected by key supplier relationships and key customer relationships. So they're managing an ecosystem of stakeholders, including the senior management team and the employee workforce. And they've got to kind of balance the demands and and the, uh, you know, the desires of this whole ecosystem of stakeholders who are not always aligned in terms of what their desires are. You know, one of the critical skills is the ability to kind of navigate and negotiate among this group of stakeholders in a way that maintains rapport, that retains, maintains respect, and, uh, and helps inform them, particularly when there are decisions that are not going to be uh, consonant with what some part of the stakeholder community or another may want. So I think, you know, one of the misconceptions is the sense of, well, CEOs, once you get that job, you're in charge and you're ruling the world. And those folks who are sitting in those chairs um, have to be very responsive to a broader array of of people to whom they're accountable than people might think and expect. You know, I, I think that the best CEOs maintain active relationship and engagement with all of those different stakeholders and constituents so that they are able to invite their perspectives. Everyone has an opinion, everyone has a point of view, and the best CEOs are able to kind of get lots of input from all of those people and then ultimately engaged in in a balancing and a kind of a negotiation process to come up with decisions that are going to be defensible in the best long-term interests of the company. When I, in my experience, I do interview a lot of people at the C-level and I'm I'm almost always incredibly impressed by how eloquent they are, how well they are able to, you know, deliver the message that they want to deliver. Do you think that public speaking communication has that skill set become more important especially for these organizations where the CEO might be on television these days have you seen that change through the I mean I think it's ability to communicate your ideas in a relationship uh, with a variety of stakeholders is always been important I think what's changed is one the number of outlets that are available now for a CEO to uh, interact with the community of stakeholders. I think nowadays there is more of an imperative for a CEO to be a, a great communicator, a great brand ambassador, and to recognize that everything they say and do reverberates very, very strongly and people are watching and everything is you know, taken symbolically. One of the things that I wanted to add about 
the attributes, if you will, of a great CEO is character. Um, so if you think about the CEOs who have lost their jobs, you know, particularly in the last several years, I mean, there, there are two primary reasons why CEOs get fired. One is for poor performance. And if you have, you know, three, four, five, six quarters in a row where you are missing your earnings and you're not delivering results, that CEO is vulnerable. But the second equally and maybe even more common reason has to do with violations of company policy or behavior that is considered inappropriate and unacceptable. And, you know, I mean, just, just in recent days, um, you know, there's a story of, uh, you know, this, the CEO of Apollo Management, who apparently had some relationship with Jeff Epstein, and he just had to step down from his role. Uh, just yesterday, there was reports of an executive that um, kind of jumped the line to get a COVID vaccination, a vaccination early, and wound up being fired. CEO of McDonald's uh, was let go last year uh, due to violating some company policy in terms of relationships inside the company. So the quality of character, trustworthiness is a really, really important thing. But one of the things that when we're building these profiles from great CEOs is what we call their ability to handle moments of truth. So it's one thing to lay out all right, here is the business strategy. Here's what we're going to be delivering. Here are the investments we're going to make. But every CEO faces these unforeseen issues, challenges. These are these moments of truth that test the character and the mettle of a CEO. How you show up during a crisis, during one of these moments of truth, is really, really critical. And that has to do with core values and character. And, you know, if you're thinking about uh, being a CEO, you really got to look in the mirror and do a, a pretty candid self-assessment about how you stack up on that. And then what kind of reputation you have among your colleagues as someone that is, you know, of, of really solid integrity, strong values and character that other people are going to be able to trust and know that when these, these times of challenge come, you're going to show up in a way as opposed to retreat or recede or misbehave. That, that issue of character and personal values is a really important part of what boards look for when they're assessing CEOs. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a great point. And I know of the examples that you gave. And also, obviously, COVID is just an incredible test for leadership. And so, you know, to hear somebody who's cutting the line for a vaccine, it's what a sign of the times. Yeah, yeah there's an old saying that says, it's the storm, not the calm that makes the sailor. You know, anyone can kind of take a, a, a sailboat across calm seas with low winds. But when the waves really start pounding the deck and the winds are picking up, you know, that really tests the navigation skills of a sailor. And it's the same for a CEO or really any executive leader that's got responsibility for an organization or a part of an organization. It was really so nice to see you. Well, it's been my pleasure, Olivia. I look forward to meeting Julian one of these days. 